And uh, we're, we're starting a series in Paul's letter to Titus uh, today, which was read out for us just before. Titus chapter 1, which was page 1198 of the Church Bibles. And hopefully inside uh, your service sheet, along with all the other uh, masses of paper and the like, is an outline that looks a bit like this that will help you as we look at that together. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, page 1198. Let me ask you, as you're finding the outline and and the passage there, have you ever been to a really good church? I mean a really good church. Have you ever been to one? Uh, How about this one? Uh, If someone was to move to Sheffield and asked you, Christchurch forward, is it a good church? Uh, What would you say? Uh, How would you describe it? What evidence would you cite? Uh, How would you prove that this is a good church? Well, let me describe to you a good church, a very good church. Imagine going to this place. Imagine being part of this church family. It is a church filled with those who are devoted to the good life. Those who enjoy the good life and are eager to live it more and more. It's a church filled with those who are hospitable. Who see the stranger in their midst and love them. Love welcoming them into this gathering. As uh, Ben does the bit in the notices uh, where the newcomers is welcome. They're the person who rather than their heart sinks and says not that bit again. But rejoices. uh, Loves to welcome newcomers into the gathering and even into their homes. Uh, This good church is filled with those who hold out the message of the gospel of Jesus like a precious jewel. Wherever they go they carry it faithfully. Now this is a church where the older men are giants of the faith who over the years have grown to love others more and more who have uh, through what all all of life has thrown at them have endured in the faith like glorious soldiers. It's a church filled with older women who are incredibly beautiful whose lives are adorned by the gospel that they believe Uh, Women who uh, delight in the task that their God has given them to teach younger women the contours of a life that is shaped by this gospel of grace. It's quite a church, isn't it? A church filled with younger women who are like some superhuman life force, who juggle the huge array of demands on their time and energies and emotions, be they demands of work or school or friends or parents or whatever it may be. Juggle all of those things uh, while for those who are married with children, building a home. A church with younger women who are utterly exhausted by all of these demands, but delighting in them. Who, if they are married, have grown to love their husbands more and more, miraculously. Even submit to them, even though he is a bonehead most of the time. And they love their children selflessly, teaching them the good life just as they themselves were taught. Quite a church, isn't it? A church uh, where the young men are incredibly strong, uh, passionate men, but not passionate for self or pleasure or excess, but somehow over time, more and more, all that passion has been channeled such that they, well, they start to look like the older guys. It's a church filled with hard workers who work well under the authority of their employers, who hold their tongue even when that's hard. They have become the most trusted workers in their team. It's a church filled with men and women who live as valued citizens in their city, who happily submit and obey to the law of the land, who look over their city and approach the city, both the great and the small of the city, with the same grace-shaped humility. Can you imagine that church? 
devoted to the good life, enjoying the good life, increasingly living it. It's quite a dream, isn't it? I wish I was more like that, don't you? I wish we were more like that. Well, this letter to Titus is written by the Apostle Paul because this is his dream, his prayer for the churches in Crete, uh, where Titus was left to work as a servant of the gospel. This letter is, if you like, Paul's instruction as Titus attempts to build churches just like that. And if you share my longing to be a church uh, like the one we have just heard described from this letter, uh, we would do well to listen to this letter. And so today as we begin that together in the first nine verses of chapter one, we'll essentially see two things. Uh, Firstly, we'll see how God does bring this good life to a church, how he does that. And secondly, we'll see who God uses to bring the good life to a church. So let's look at the first of those, verses one to four, how God brings the good life to a church. Uh, Right from the very first verse of this letter, there's no sort of padded out introduction. Uh, Right from the first verse, he reveals how this happens, how the good life came to Crete and is building the churches there. How did it happen? Well, a servant of God did his job. That's how it happened. Now, that's how the Apostle Paul introduces himself. He is a man who is a servant, serving another's purposes. He's God's. And his God's purpose for Crete is his purpose for every city on the face of the earth, life and blessing, the good life. He wants churches filled with people who are not just existing but living this good life, devoted to doing what is good. And so in Crete, as he has elsewhere, Paul serves that purpose. And that's how the good life reached the city, because he did his job. He's a servant, Uh, more literally, he's a slave, he's subject to this king, King Jesus. He has no choice but to do the job he's been commanded to do. And we see in verse 1, he is a unique servant. He's an apostle, sent directly at the command of the risen Lord Jesus, called, we're told in verse 3, at God's perfect timing. God knew just when he would ask this man Paul to do this job. God looked across the span of time and in his wisdom chose just when. Don't you love how God works? Our world spins around day after day, generations come and go, living a fragile, uh, a shell of the good life at best. People like we were before this servant did his job and that gospel reached us. People described in chapter 3, verse 3 of this letter. Have a look there, chapter 3, verse 3. See who we were before this message reached us. Foolish not wise enough to build the good life ourselves. Disobedient, uh, even when he called us to the good life, we rejected it. Deceived into thinking that our existence was as good as life gets. And enslaved, even in those moments where we glimpsed there must be more to life than this, so we were powerless to change our situation. And so our world spins around, generations come and go, we're filled with people like us, people like that, But at God's appointed time, he knocks an uppity, zealous Jewish man on his backside on a dusty road outside of Damascus. And with all the authority of heaven and earth, he commands him to speak the message of hope to the nations. How did the good life come to Crete and build the church there? A servant sent directly at the command of the risen Jesus obeyed his king. He was sent to proclaim the king's victory on the cross. And what a victory! Have a look again at chapter 3, verse 4, and after seeing who we once were described, you see the message that Paul had to carry to Crete and to the churches of Crete. 
Here's the hope of the nations. When the kindness and love of our God, God our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus, our Saviour. That is the word that brings the good life. The word of the gospel, the gospel of grace. But how can mere words change lives? How can uh, mere words spoken by a mere man uh, totally change life? How? Well, look at verses 1 and 2 of Titus 1 again and see the weighty purpose of these words. And as we said, it shouldn't surprise us that the word our God speaks has power to change. This is a God who spoke the world into existence. This is a God whose word is living and active. And so watch what happens when this message, this gospel is spoken by his apostle. What happens? Verse 1, faith happens. A trust in God is brought to life in dead hearts, deceived hearts, disobedient hearts, enslaved hearts. Come to trust this message. And this trust, this faith has a real content. Do you see it there in verse 1? Knowledge of the truth. Truth about ourselves, as hard as that is to hear. That I was foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved. That's the truth. But also truth about our God, as wonderful as that is to hear. Truth that our God, in chapter 2, verse 14, gave himself for us to redeem us. Truth that in Jesus he has shown us kindness and mercy. Truth that he is the one who saves us from who we once were. Truth that in his sight I am washed totally clean. Truth that he has justified us, not by law or lies or deeds, but grace. That's the content our faith trusts in, and it trusts it because it's true. And not just true, because uh, hearing true things can be fairly pointless, can't it? Like it is true that this morning my tie is blue. That's true. Uh, good, Andrew, but so what? Or it's true that last week, as English, uh, the English were playing the French in the Rugby World Cup, I was cheering for the French. <laughs> also true. Uh, good, Andrew, keep that up and we'll arrange for your deportation. <laughs> it's also true that the very first thing that happened to me as I was leaving the 915 services, someone broke it to me that the Wallabies had lost while I was preaching in the first service. Also true. But there is hearing truth that does you no good, isn't there? Like that. Then there is a knowledge of the truth that the gospel brings. A truth that has an incredible purpose. Do you see it there in verse 1? Nothing short of recreation. Profound change in those who hear and believe it. You see it there, verse 1? Where does this knowledge of the truth lead to? It leads to godliness. Now this phrase here in the very first verse of our letter, knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, is the beating heart of this letter. Paul's already given the game away. Why does God speak the gospel of grace to you and to me? He speaks it, yes, to save us from our slavery to sin. He saves us from sin and death that we were powerless before. But even more than that, he speaks it to save us for something, for freedom, freedom to live the good life. God's ambition for your life by means of his gospel is not just to clear away the junk and leave a void in your life, just absent of bad things. No, his gospel rebuilds us as we were always meant to be. Creatures who look like their creator. 
The more we hear and believe this gospel, the, the deeper it sinks into us, the deeper the, its effect to change our life. Let me ask you if you believe this. The gospel is the most powerful agent of change this world has ever known. It's not governments, it's not armies, it's not money, it's not power, it's the gospel. Hearing and believing the gospel is the most risky thing you can do to the status quo of your life. If your ambition is to stay the same and never change, don't listen to this message. Now this is how uh, C.S. Lewis puts it, speaking of the change uh, God brings by the gospel. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. Uh, At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. Uh, You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house to the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The gospel of grace is the most powerful agent of change in this world. It leads to godliness, godlikeness. Made in his image as we were, we will be remade by this word. And so there's such a huge weight of expectation on the gospel proclaimed, isn't there? Can it carry that weight? Well, yes, it can. Verse 2, look what this knowledge of the truth, look what the gospel is resting on, look what it's founded on. Faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Do you see the incredibly strong foundation of this transforming knowledge? Hope. Hope promised by a God who doesn't lie. Hope that was promised before the basement of time and spans all the way into eternity. That's how big this hope is. Hope of, uh, verse 4, sharing in his grace and peace. Hope of being able, verse 4, to call him our father. Be his children. Hope of this moment that is captured for us in chapter 2, verse 13, when gloriously he will appear... He who gave himself for us will appear. We will see him face to face. Hope of that reunion. That's what drives this change. Life now is about the joyful wait for that reunion. That's the energy, the power that brings godliness. Have you ever had a situation where you're waiting, expecting something, and you know it's certain, you know it's coming, and it does change the way you think and live? I remember back in 2007, it was our first year here, and near the end of that year, Elizabeth, uh, my wife, went back to Sydney with one of our children, Jamie, for a couple of weeks, and it was a terrible time. Uh, We were still getting used to uh, living in a new country, and there we were miles apart from each other, as far as you can get in the world apart from each other. And uh, as it came closer to the day she was returning, all of a sudden I swung into action. The house was, by this stage, uh, in disarray and needed to be put back in order. So I did that, Finn and I charging around the house trying to put it back in order, uh, making preparations. Heck, I even bought a new T-shirt to pick her up with at the airport, shiny new red T-shirt for the occasion. Everything changed. And that's just a hint of what we're in on as Christians. When you realise there is coming a day when the one who gave himself for you, you will see him, he will appear and you will see him face to face. The more our hearts and minds know that truth, 
rest on that hope, the more we will be changed, upheld and enabled by that hope. We will, as this letter says, take great care to devote ourselves to doing what is good. That is how God brings the good life to us. And here in this introductory verses, uh, we're given an example of one who has been changed by that gospel, Titus. Uh, verse 4, he is described as a true son, which I think means he was converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He is the result of Paul's obedience to the king's command. And he now shares in the riches of this common faith, resting on hope. And as we're introduced to Titus here in verse 4, the recipient of this letter, he will help us with our second question. You remember that? You can see it on the outline. Not only how God brings the good life to a church, but who God uses to bring the good life to a church. Paul was charged with the task of speaking the apostolic gospel. That was his unique call. But he was to hand on that gospel to others, others who were told, verse 7, would be entrusted with that same work. Others who, verse 9, would teach what they were taught by the apostle. And so in verse 5, we see that Paul has been called away from Crete, so he leaves Titus there to carry on this work. And if your eyes glance down to verse 10 and 11 of chapter 1, you'll see that Crete was difficult territory for gospel ministry. Firstly, there was a culture around the church, a godless culture. They were known for it. And not only outside the church was a difficult territory, even within the church it was filled with false gospels, other gospels, lies. Titus is charged in verse 5 to straighten out what is left unfinished charged with the job of bringing order in Crete and order in the church, good order. But realise what's being asked of him here. It's not bringing order as the police tried to do with the riots in recent times, just sort of calm things down a little bit. No, this is the spectacularly good order that only the gospel can bring about. Order in, as we'll see as we go through this letter, in relationships, in family life, in work life, in public square life. And he's going to do that the same way Paul did in Crete. He's going to carry the gospel. He will rebuke with this gospel. He'll teach, he'll encourage, he'll remind, he'll warn. All of that will bring this order. And in verse 5 we see that he's not going to be alone in that task. Wherever there is a church in Crete, Titus is to appoint others to faithfully carry that gospel with him. Paul, the apostle to the nations, can't be in every place at once. And very soon after this letter is written, he will die anyway. Nor can Titus be in all the towns, in all the churches in Crete. And how are they going to bring this order about, this lofty dream that we saw at the start? Well, they're going to need servants. Lots and lots and lots of servants. Servants who will take and teach this gospel that godliness may flourish in every town in Crete. And so here in verse 5, I think we have an insight into what is required to take the gospel to this church and to the churches of Sheffield and beyond. This is why in our vision, as was articulated last Sunday, one of the key things is training leaders. Here you see why. We are committed to see more and more raised up to take this gospel to the churches of this land. And it's also why in this church alone we need more and more elders, more and more people doing this. We are a church of a thousand people who all need to be reordered by the gospel. I wonder if it's occurred to you as you came here this morning uh, to uh, hear the word of God or in your small group or at uh, Mission Explored if you're part of that course or Church Family Prayer or Friday Club or wherever it might be, God's ambition is to bring the good life to us 
through his gospel. We need more and more servants who will do that. And so notice in verses 5 and 7, those appointed to this task to speak the gospel are given two names. Elders, in verse 5, are literally presbyters, are sometimes mistranslated and misused as priest, but presbyter is the word. Or overseer, in verse 7, literally the bishop. Uh, they're, they're actually two titles that refer to the same role. The role of being appointed to lead us by preaching the gospel to us. And so if you think right now across the way in the, in the hall, Sunday AM is meeting, the youth group is meeting, and uh, if you like, uh, Joe Houghton is the bishop of Sunday AM. He's the bishop. He's the one charged with that role there. Uh, so these titles, these two titles, which mean the same thing, they're not prescriptions for certain church structures that have to be there if a church is to be authentic. Nor are they the definition of what makes a church, but they are the apostles' plan for the church in Crete, how it will be strengthened. How knowledge of the truth will lead to godliness there. And so this is vitally important for us to listen to because we long to be a good church as well. Good in the deepest sense. And for that to happen here, we need to see God's chosen means for a place like Crete, which is just like Sheffield. Godless culture and often false gospels in our churches. And so in the light of those things, we are to appoint elders. And so who is he to appoint? What sort of leaders will be needed to bring about this sort of radical change? Surely the most gifted people we can find are the most powerful communicators. No. Now look at verses 6 to 9. See the team Paul calls Titus to put together. And again, listen in as we see who he's asked to choose because this is the sort of thing you should be praying for the elders in our church and those who will be appointed in due time. It's also what we should be praying for those that we send for training. These are the sort of people we should send. And it's also what we should be praying and looking out for in ourselves. Many of us are called to teach the gospel in different contexts. And so firstly, verse 6, you have the team selection. As Titus appoints elders, he is to find people who are blameless, above reproach. He's to look for men who will not drag the gospel down by their life whose life won't adorn the gospel with shame, who are, as ambassadors of the gospel, won't weigh it down with accusations that stick against them. Ultimately, Titus is looking for men whose lives are gripped by the gospel they speak, whose own life is being straightened out by the gospel of grace. And so how does he find such a person? Verse 6. He is to look at the house they're already building. If they're going to be charged with building the household of God in Crete, uh, it's worth asking, are they building their own house that way? Is their own house increasingly shaped by the gospel they are to speak? And so in terms of their relationships, if they are married, uh, is their relationship faithful? Are they literally a one-woman man? Are they faithful in their relationship because they will be representing a God who doesn't lie? Who is faithful? And secondly, uh, other relationships, their children, are are their children's lives defying the culture around them? Are they gravity-defying? Are they children who are growing up in a faith resting on hope? Are they children who are, that knowledge is leading to godliness, real change in their life as they grow up? 
Now, let me say, I, I think it's, uh, we need to be realistic about this at this point in time. Kids are, I think, under huge pressure, perhaps more than they ever had before, huge cultural pressure, which makes it hard for Christian parents to be fulfilling this role, especially the pressure of independence from parents to, have, to pay no heed to what a parent says. And it's easy for me to look at this verse as a, young, a dad of very young children and say, fine, got it covered. The most dramatic thing my children do, uh, for instance, we had a baptism of our youngest, Matilda, at the uh, first service and she was running away from the, the baptism font at the wrong time. That, that's about as rebellious and wild and disobedient as she gets, age one. But I imagine as they grow older into teenage years and the pressures become more and more, they, this is a difficult call, isn't it? But Titus is to look for a pattern of family life over time. Is the life of that family shaped by the gospel, even if there are difficult seasons? So there's the team selection. And in verses 7 to 9, as we near an end, is the team strategy. Again, it's fascinating in the strategy what these people are to do, uh, that gifting is taking a distant back seat. The two things Titus is to encourage them to do is life and speech. Now firstly, verse 7 in their life, here are three things in verse 7 that must not be present as these elders go about their task. Firstly, they are not to be about self-promotion. It says there they're not to be overbearing. It literally means self-willed, self-pleasing. They're not to be leaders who get to a place where the church exists for them. It's their stage, their place of significance. Not a leader who is increasingly frustrated when their ambition is thwarted by those around them, those pesky parishioners. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in uh, one of my favourite books, a little book called Life Together, says this of uh, the elder. He says, God hates the visionary dreamer. <laughs> it's dangerous, isn't it, having just launched our vision uh, last week to say God hates the visionary dreamer. God hates the one whose vision is all about their own import. Their own exaltation in this church. It's all about me. And I think a test for us uh, who are in the role of elder and for those who would uh, hope to be in the future, the test is whether, whether you are developing a self-promoting ministry, a visionary dreamer ministry, is what brings you the most pleasure in your ministry? Is it the success that comes with it? The kudos that comes your way? What's most disheartening for you? What frustrates you the most? Is it when you're thwarted? Whose cause are you running for? They're not to be self-promoting. Secondly, they're not to be self-defeating. Not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent. These are things, are pictures of a leader who is no longer gripped by the knowledge that's meant to lead to godliness. This gospel promises that it leads to godliness. A self-defeating elder is one who thinks they can run with that gospel without being changed by it. Quick-tempered. We are not to be impatient with difficult people, not frustrated by those who thwart our progress or even the gospel's progress, not given to violence, which I guess is the direction of travel for those with a quick temper, not given to drunkenness, which is a self-defeating act that says you are gripped by another God another pleasure other than your God and his purposes. And finally, they are not to be self-serving, not pursuing dishonest gain. 
One of the most striking uh, pieces of advice I was given soon after finishing Bible college uh, in my after-college training was by a minister in Sydney called Philip Jensen who said this, uh, and the line is burnt in my memory. He says, don't make money off the cross. Don't make money off the cross. If an elder ever gets to the situation where they are in it for their own gain, be it financial or otherwise, they know they're in the wrong job not to be pursuing dishonest gain. But wonderfully, verse 8 shows us the other side of the picture. Those are the things that are to be absent. But here are the signs of real change brought about by the gospel, uh, brought about by the knowledge of the truth that need to be there more and more. Rather than self-promotion, they are to love the stranger, hospitable, even when there's nothing in it for them. To love them, even at cost, for that is the way God has reshaped their heart. Rather than self-promotion, they are to love the good, That sounds easy, doesn't it? We all love the good. Who doesn't love the good? But increasingly loving the good, even at cost, even when it's inconvenient, even when it would be easier to to lie or to manipulate. Rather than self-defeat and self-serving, they are replaced by these mighty attributes instead. They are to be upright and holy. Live lives ablaze with the gospel. They are to be self-controlled and disciplined, a life that has increasingly been reordered, straightened out by the gospel. And why is all of this so important? Why is the instruction so specific? Verse 7, do you remember it? They are entrusted with the work of the living God. They are his stewards. They carry with them the most precious, powerful gift this world has ever known, the gospel. This is how God is bringing faith and hope to life in his world, to bring radical change for good. And so how often are those stakes at the forefront of our minds as we pray for our elders, as we look to appoint more elders, as we look at our own lives and those we're called to teach the gospel to? God wants people whose lives are gripped by his gospel. And one final thing from verse 9, and we'll spend a significant time looking at this next week, but I need to flag it up as we close. Titus is not just to look for those whose lives are gripped by the gospel, but those who hold tightly to the gospel. Verse 9, hold firmly to this trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. If the gospel is going to continue its path through our church family, through the churches we plant, through the churches of the city and the country and the world, we need servants. Lots and lots of servants who will trust God's plan, his purposes enough to faithfully carry this gospel. They won't get creative with it, they won't change it, they'll hold it and they'll pass it on. Realising the almighty power that that message has to change everything. Well, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the gospel of grace that in your timing uh, you have unveiled by the preaching of the apostle. And we thank you for the apostolic gospel that has been faithfully handed down to us. Uh, We thank you that it is the power for those who believe, power to bring real change, power to do us incredible good. Father, help us to be those who submit to the message of the gospel and are so changed by it. Help us to be those whose lives are gripped by this gospel and also those who, especially those in positions of eldership, who grip tightly to this gospel.
We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen.